You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Arelis Hernandez, reporter for the Washington Post. Joining me today is Gloria Calderon Kellett, creator, writer, and executive producer of the upcoming Amazon Prime series, With Love. She also stars in the new series. In full disclosure, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos separately owns the Washington Post. Welcome, Gloria. Welcome, welcome. I feel so welcome. Good morning. Good morning, think, or good morning in LA, I imagine. Uh, good morning in LA <laughs> still, yes. I guess for you, it's good afternoon. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, we're here around this show. I mentioned it in the top. Let's talk about With Love. What is it about and what drew you to this project? You know, this show really came out of the pandemic. I think I was feeling, it was this time last year, I was feeling the weight of, you know, this is going to be the second Christmas where we don't get to see family. And at that time, and I think that I was craving sitting around and hearing everybody's stories and what everyone's up to. And uh, at the same time, I think my Instagram was a barrage of still really negative images about black, brown, queer and API people. And I wanted to just provide a salve. I wanted to provide I go to comedy when I'm feeling blue. Uh, I watch all those Christmas movies like Elf and When Harry Met Sally and It's a Wonderful Life. I love all of those movies, but there's really not a reflection of my community in those movies. So I went to Amazon and I said, I would really love to make something very elevated. I want it to look like a Nancy Myers movie. I want it to feel like those great rom-coms of the 90s. And I want us to be at the center of the story. And they were so supportive and we went right into pre-production and here we are, here we are with this this gift for the holidays. No, I actually had an opportunity to, to preview it. Wow, let me say. And I'm just wondering, like, yeah, how does, you know, the storytelling that you do in this series sort of fit in with your goals to show, you know, Latinos with more joy on screen? Well, it's just who I know us to be. Like, it's really interesting to watch TV and just be like, oh, another... And another gangbang or another drug, like, it's just not how I know us to be. So it feels like the world is getting uh, a view of us that's not real. Uh, so for me, it was just, I wanted to celebrate my family. I wanted to celebrate my community. I wanted all of us that are thriving. I'm first generation American. My parents were born in Cuba and I was born here. And this is what it also looks like. It just provides uh, what American Latinos that are thriving can look like. And, you know, 80% of U.S. Latinos are citizens. People don't know that. 67% were born here. That is not the narrative. According to the narrative you see of us on TV, that's not what people would think. So to be able to show that these are Latinos that are thriving, they're doing great, they're working hard. You know, Latinos started more small businesses than any other racial or ethnic group in the U.S. over the last decade. So to show a family that owns a restaurant and is doing great, and it's third generation now, to show two Afro-Latino men that own a construction business that are doing great, those are little things that maybe to the, the average viewer, it doesn't strike them as anything. But for us, it's so meaningful. So we're still trying to rectify the narrative of who we are. Well, we do have a clip here. Let's uh, let's take a look from With Love. I feel like it's always you who gets the metaphorical dousing. Honestly, I'm used to it by now. 
I know everyone thinks I'm a total mess, and they're not wrong, but I'm having way more fun than any of you. <laughs> Actually, I've always admired that about you. Hmm. <sighs> Kinda feel like I've spent too much time coloring inside the lines. Sometimes I wonder what life would have been like if I hadn't. You're looking at it, baby. I mean, no kids. I stay up all night watching Bravo with my gay friends. I'm 44 and ready for more. <laughs> that does really sound like fun. Yes. And uh, you are 46. If I'm 46, then you're 52. I am 52. That is your choice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about your character here, Gladys, who you described as the modern feminist Thea that we all deserve, right? Yes, modern feminist Thea. She is single. She's found the love of her life, and it's herself. And for me, you know, I was really drawn to Gladys because I met my husband when I was 16 years old and we got married when I was 26. You know, I'd been with him for a decade. We got married. So he's like my one and only. But I thought if I did not meet this man, I would be single. There's no one else that even was interesting to me because I really enjoy spending time with myself. So what is that like? I think that so many times in our community, Women are so defined by, are you married? Itu novio is a joke in the Latino community that when you go to a family event, they say, itu novio, where's your boyfriend, right? And it's like, wait, we can be all the dreams that we want, we can have, you know? And it's really wonderful. I joke with my kids, hey, I'm with your dad because I really like him because I don't need him. <laughs> you know, I got all this stuff because I did it. I'm with him because I love him and he makes my life more interesting and fun. And But it's, it's, an outdated thought that we need these men in order to make our dreams come true. They can be a part of the journey. So I wanted Gladys to reflect that. And you also made family a big part of, you know, the creative force behind the storytelling here. Why is that, why has that been such an important part and rich area for you to explore? Um, and why haven't you done it before in, in talking about maybe your own family experiences? Well, I did on one day at a time. That was largely based on my mother and I, my, my relationship with my mother. Uh, and this one, I, I felt like, you know, with a sitcom, you're really focusing on the main six characters. And they, you can have a guest star here or there, but the, the structure of that type of storytelling really focuses on the main group. So with this, I had the joy of getting to expand the world. We get to see all of these Diaz and all of these cousins, and which is way more reflective of what my world actually looks like. So when I go to a family function, the first thing I do is what Lily does. She finds her favorite cousin and she's like, what's going on? Give me the family gossip. And you find out everybody's story and what's going on. And then you interact with all of your, you know, the crazy uncle and the conservatives and the liberals. And that, you know, like it's it's such a fun uh, a way to connect. and. I think especially during this pandemic, you know, the, the, the last few, you know, the last five years, especially, uh, things have been very divided for, for much of the country and I think for many families. And so to be able to show that, you know, I have conser super conservative cousins that, that live in Miami that I still love, even though our views on certain political issues are very, very different. So is there a way that we can build bridges by talking about these things and remembering that they want the same things I want. We just have different points of view about how we should go about getting those things. But I think so much of media and TV is about what we don't have in common. And there's a lot we do have in common. So it's reminding us of those things. 
Well, I recall from one interview that you did that you said professionally, it sort of took you a long time to get to the point of one day at a time to start writing about your family. Why do you think that is? Because I had seen so many friends before me who had told the story of their family and they were not supported by the right creative team. And as a result, it was watered down in a way that did not reflect their family anymore. And then that was the opportunity missed. So for me, I'm so grateful to Norman Lear and Mike Royce, who were my partners on One Day at a Time, because I felt so supported and so loved. And they consistently would lift me up and say, ask Gloria, this is about Gloria. Gloria can go in, Gloria, you know. So I really took my power. These men really handed me the microphone so that I could be the voice. And through doing that, I saw how powerful it was and how it made me feel. And I wanna do that for other people. So with this show, I've been able to support the writers that that work on my staff and give them that confidence, hopefully, so that they can move on from here to make their own shows about their own narratives. Well, With Love is a holiday movie, and we know that holiday movies are centered around often white characters. Right? What's the significance of having a show like With Love or a movie like Single All the Way, which is Netflix's first queer-led Christmas movie? What's the significance of those stories you know, centering someone other than a white character? It's huge because we exist, right? America Ferrera recently was talking about representation and I think she put it so perfectly. So I want to give her props. She said, not seeing yourself on TV is like growing up in a house where your pictures are not on the walls. And that really resonated with me because there's an erasure of your experience. You're constantly having to see yourself through someone else's lens. And this is, you know, while this show is through a Latino lens, this is a show that anybody can watch. Anyone, I think that that dominant culture will love this rom-com because every episode is a different holiday. So you have Christmas Eve, then you have New Year's, then you have Valentine's Day, then you have Fourth of July. Like this is an American story that happens to be through our lens. So we invite you in. We invite you in and we think that a lot of people are going to say, oh my gosh, that's just like me. Uh, we just normally don't get to see it through people that look like this. I want to talk about your creative process because you surrounded, as you said, yourself with a diverse crew of writers, of actors to tell these stories. What What is that process like for you to make sure that you're capturing sort of the diversity of experiences within Latino communities? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big proponent. Latino, we're not a monolith, right? We're really 20 countries under this umbrella of Latinidad. And so on the show, we have Afro-Latinx characters and I am a white Latina. So I needed to have black writers in the room to represent that point of view. We also have LGBTQ characters and I am a cis straight woman. So I needed to have those writers in there to give their specific point of view and to really highlight things that would never have occurred to me as good of a writer as I am. And the same is true with the trans element. We have a, a trans masculine non-binary writer who was able to fill in all of Soul's stories and give it such texture and specificity that no matter how many Google searches or books I read, I could not possibly capture that lived experience. So it's vital for me. I just think it makes it all better to have the, uh, the generosity of these talented voices in space around me to, to teach me daily and to be in dialogue with. It was really a pleasure. You talked about in, in the, the clip, the intro video that we saw uh, about these one dimensional narratives of Latinas and Latinos on screen. And what do you think is behind that reduction, reductionism? You yourself said that, you know, it doesn't matter how many books you read, you could not tell 
specific stories about you know a trans person right so where is that reductionism with latinas and the one dimensionality coming from i think it is because we are finally naming that we live in a white supremacist patriarchal society and i think that i'm so happy to see uh, dominant culture under, start to understand that start to say oh you know like i norman and mike are such perfect norman lear and mike royce were such perfect allies because they understood that, oh, things have always been made for them. So they, when they would be in conversation with me, they were learning about stuff and they were like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. It never occurred to me because everything has always been made for me. And I have always been told that I can do everything, right? So we need to be in conversation to let people know that the work of anti-racism is daily work. And I think I've been talking to a lot of advocates recently about you know, the fallout, the aftermath of George Floyd and the two years of, of trauma, collective trauma that all of us have been through with this pandemic and with this racial reckoning. And it does sort of seem like in this moment that people are like, we read the book. Oh, racism is bad. We get it. We get it. And things now are kind of worse than they were right before the pandemic because there is this feeling that they read the book, so they did the work. And the work is daily. The work is daily. How can I show up daily for other people? How can I show up daily to stand up for uh, an equitable world? And I think about that for myself, which is why I've made it a point to focus on stories that are not just Latino stories, but stories for the LGBTQ community, for the Afro-Latino uh, community, stories about the AAPI community, rolling those in because we stand together. These are all American stories. So I constantly think, what can I do? And I would beg that other people would do that same work. What do you hope that telling these stories will do for reshaping or rewriting narratives about Latinos in this country? I mean, I, this is crazy to say, I hope it humanizes us. I hope it humanizes us. I think, you know, when my parents came here in 1962, uh, it was a very different receiving of immigrants. Uh, they, they were welcome in, they were given a path to citizenship. And as a result, the Cuban community is thriving in the US. Not all Latinos are treated that way. Not all immigrants are treated that way. And so to be sitting here by the virtue of the kindness of the people at that time, and to understand that the narrative on television about us at that time that had percolated, because it takes about 10 years for it to sort of infiltrate for pop culture, for culture, which is what I make, to break through so that it starts to be a part of people's lived experiences. Well, you look at what happened in 1952, the number one show in America was I Love Lucy. So Cuban Americans were in people's homes and we're funny and we're married to American women and we're, right? So it, to see, oh, I might be here because Desi Arnaz was on TV. How can I do that? How can I do that? Because right now the story that's being told is such that we have children separated from their families, children in cages, children that, um, that are trying to come here that are leaving very dire situations in other countries that have not been treated the way that my family was. So I feel it a real duty to, to represent so that the future can be brighter for them. Given sort of the, the timeline that you've given us, you know, the, this 10 year timeline when these, some of these stories break through, where do you think we are now and in, in, in terms of representation and, and what do you think your contribution has been to that? I think it's still pretty dire. It's why I won't shut up. 
I love this community. I'm so proud to be Cuban American. I'm so proud of the journey that my parents and grandparents took and the fight that they fought so that I could have freedom, so that I could speak freely. So I think I owe it to them to speak freely and to say, we can all do better. We are all trying to thrive on this on this mortal coil, right? And and how can we do it in a way so that all of us can be having the most wonderful time and living uh, living joyfully and living prosperous? So that's it. Just feels like part of the work. Well, I spoke to America America Ferreira not too long ago, uh, sort of on the same on the same issues, and we talked about specific steps. And now I'm going to pose the same questions to you. What are specific steps that the entertainment industry can take? to try and make sure that we're not in, you know, status dire and, and, and are telling stories in a more complete and nuanced way. Well, I'm glad you asked. I am a part of an organization called the Untitled Latinx Project. We have partnered with America's company Harness to put together uh, five tenants to make sure that Hollywood is more inclusive, nothing about us without us, making sure that we are in rooms uh, where Latino stories are being told, but baked into the creation of those narratives so that it rings true to our community because we can smell it. We can smell it when it's not authentic. Uh, and we are going to, we are in the process of right now hiring a proxy so that we can start meeting with studio heads and demanding that the tenants of our letter, the Dear Hollywood letter that you guys can Google if you want to read it, uh, talking about ways that Hollywood can help us out. We think there are a lot of people that do want to do the right thing, but don't know what to do. So we wanted to give a roadmap. Here's where we can start. Let's start here. And let's have these conversations. And I'm happy to have these conversations. I'm happy to sit with you and say, this is why this is damaging and this is why this is great. So let's do more of the great stuff. Because uh, that's going to be great for us all. So I think it's starting there. So inevitably, I was going to ask you a question about West Side Story remake of this uh, classic, you know, musical. And yes. which I might have read 30 plus different essays on, you know, the limits of representation. And I'm curious, you know, from you, it, it, like, did we need a new West Side Story? I mean, that I think, you know, Spielberg and other had talked about making it more authentic to the experience, but I'm curious what you, how you feel about that. I loved it. I saw it and I loved it. I was crying pretty much throughout the whole thing uh, to really see people speaking Spanish that know how to speak Spanish, uh, people that were, um, Rita's character was so was so beautiful. They really, they added a storyline where this Puerto Rican woman had married uh, a Caucasian guy and, and, you know, Doc and had opened this bodega. And seeing it, it's, I watched it, it was like, oh, that's what it was supposed to be. Oh, that's what it was supposed to be. That's how I felt watching it. It felt like they were righting the wrongs. It was also, expensive and beautiful and we don't get that very often and i look if i'm going to see you know ariana debose on on a big screen twirling and dancing i want to see it i'm here for it so i loved it i loved it and i think that you know if this is a movement to like do right by all the stuff that that was problematic that's fine with me <laughs> that is fine with me so and it's one of my favorite musicals and i did my dissertation on stephen sondheim so i you know i i was i loved every moment of it so i'm thrilled it exists 
Well, I'm curious, you know, with these kinds of stories, if the growing number of platforms that are available right now have opened up new opportunities like for storytellers like yourself or creators like yourself and and what kind of risks are you able to take because these these platforms have opened up? I think so. I think it's very exciting. What I want to see though is you know, anytime there's something new, you have to break down what is good and bad about how it's all being done. So, are there more opportunities? Absolutely. Is there still, uh, I think that the algorithms are problematic because algorithms can only assess what has existed. It cannot assess what, where the needs are. So if nothing, has, if, if stuff for us hasn't existed, we're not going to be in there because we don't know how it's done because it hasn't happened. So I want to further the conversations and say, if there is something that is doing well, that is speaking to a community, let's give that time and air and money behind it. Uh, you know, being, being on with love at Amazon, it was one of the conversations I had when I moved there. I said, I really want the show promoted like a white show. And they assured me that that would happen. And so to sit here and see a wraparound in the LA Times, uh, the billboards that, I mean, it makes me emotional because those are my people up there. And they deserve that. They deserve to be loved in that way. And so I think that hopefully that will mean that more will understand the importance of lifting up. So when you do make it, that's not enough to just make it. You've got to also give it the opportunity to thrive. And I think that Amazon understands that. And I'm so grateful to, to be there in this moment. They're doing the same thing with Harlem, which is an incredible show about New York about African-American women living in New York City. Uh, it, it, that's that's what I'm here for, is, is those kinds of shows that are just expanding the view to include people who have been here the whole time. How does your experience with With Love compare to the promotional experience that you had with One Day at a Time? Because I, I was an early adopter and fan of the show as well, and was disappointed to see it come off the platforms and have to search for it. Um, could you compare the two experiences for me? And, and there's what no, that says there's about no comparison. <laughs> there's no, there's no comparison. Uh, you know, and look, I get that television is a business. I understand that you can't give equal money to every single show. I understand, but it was difficult for my heart because I, creatively I loved Netflix. They let me make the show I wanted to make. I would do it again tomorrow. I loved the creative experience. They were wonderful creatively. Uh, but the promotion of the show, I would open up the LA Times and it was full page ads for The Crown, full page ads for, you know, Stranger Things. And you're like, oh, my show's 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Can we have like this much of an ad? <laughs> you know? Um, and I remember uh, a writer from El País in Spain reached out to me and they were like, we were doing a retrospective on Rita Moreno and we saw the show on her IMDb and looked it up and could not believe it was on Netflix Spain because we had not heard of it here at all, even though the show is dubbed in Spanish there. And that was the, the thing, right? Is that um, it became very difficult to, people are finding it now. People, every day I get tweets with people finding the show for the first time. And I would, I wish they would have found it then, you know, so that, so that that could still be existing and I could still go on to make other things. Cause that's the dream is that I would love to, you know, I'm so honored and thrilled to be in a time where women of color like Shonda Rhimes and Mindy Kaling are paving the way to have many shows that are reflective of their experiences on TV. Those are mostly the shows that I love and watch. 
and so I want to be doing that as well. I want to have many shows that are able to really show a, the totality of our experiences because one show can't make up for 200 years. Can't do it. Well, so I had so many questions for you, but I'm quickly running out of time and I want to get into at least one question about sort of your background, the way you grew up. I'm curious, as you said, born to uh, Cuban immigrants in Portland and then moved to San Diego. How did your being perceived differently in those communities inform your sense of identity? Oh, my gosh. Well, in Oregon, so I grew up in a in a small Cuban community. There were a bunch of feather pen kids. Basically, what happened is 1960 to 1962, because many people don't know this, 14,000 Cuban children came from Cuba to Miami on an exchange program as they were trying to figure out how to get Castro out of Cuba. It did not work. And uh, my grandparents both were able to get out and escape on the freedom flights and be with my parents a year later. But my parents were in a, in a detention center and then were in foster care uh, until my grandparents were able to come here. Then you have 14,000 kids and their families there was no infrastructure in Miami at that time. I mean, now we see what Miami is because of all of these Cubans that came. Different churches would take different families in all over the country. That's why the Cuban diaspora is so spread out. So there were, you know, 20, 30 families that churches took in in Portland, Oregon. And that's where both my mother and father and their families went. So I grew up in a little Cuban community in the middle of very white, very green Oregon, right? And uh, I had this little Cuban community and then I had dominant culture all around me. And so the code switching was very real. I'd be like, oh yeah, and then out in the world, they'd be like, hello, hi everyone, how are you? Right, like you're able to like go back and forth. And growing up, my experience was mostly with Cubans who are white and black, pri primarily. So I was a white Cuban, those were black Cubans. We all grew up together, very warm, loving, great. When I moved to San Diego when I was 14 years old was the first time I lived in a border town. We were 20 minutes from Tijuana. We could go down there all the time and it was beautiful. And it was at that time, it was so easy to go back and forth and just wonderful. And I made friends with a lot of Mexican kids. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm Cuban, I'm white. And they're like, no, you're not, you're brown. Why are you aligning yourself with whiteness? I was like, oh, am I, I just, am I brown? Oh, I guess I'm brown. I'm so sorry. I thought it was white. I'm sorry. I guess I'm brown. You know, like I, I didn't know. So I really, I just like, I didn't know I was brown until I was 14 and other people who I adored, they weren't being mean about it. They were just like, you got it wrong. These old people are telling you and you got it wrong. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm brown. So then I thought I was brown for many years. <laughs> Even though, I mean, you know, I tan like a dream. I'm just a writer. So I'm a vampire sitting at a desk all the time. But even tan, I'm pretty light skinned. Um, and then you, and then, and then kind of five or six years ago, it was like, oh, you're, you're not, you're not brown, you're white passing. Cool. Okay, I'm white passing. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm a white passing Latina. And now the conversation is turning back around to no, you're just a white Latina. So I was like, oh, now we're back to the, okay. Basically, all of this is to say it's complicated. It's complicated. And these are conversations that we need to be having within the community and we need to have some kindness surrounding it because we're all trying to figure it out. I mean, are we Latino? Are we Latina? Are we Latinx? Are we Latina? We don't even have a unified name for what we are, right? Because people like to umbrella term us. So every 20, 30 years, there's a new name, Hispanics. Are we, you know, right? Chicano. Like all of these things are, we're trying to figure out what our identity is. 
And we're trying to figure out who we are as Americans, because there's this feeling of like not Latino enough, too Latino. Like it's within our own communities, you're playing a game of like 3D chess and in dominant culture, you're playing that same game. Well, I I wish I could ask you more questions and that we've had more time. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Gloria Calderon Kellett, for speaking with me today. Uh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.